bright light shone on the Athenians when Aristogeidon and Harmodius killed Hipparchus. The two of them made their native land equal in laws. The inscription by Simonides on the plaque of the bronze statues of Aristogeidon and Harmonides. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 11, Athens, The Rise of Democracy. Last time we left Athens with Solon, having departed on his travels, so that the Athenians could start to come to terms with their new constitution without his guidance. The logic behind this was so that the Athenians would start to interpret the laws on a case-by-case basis, and be judged on their own merits. Solon's intention was to move away from the rigid step-by-step systems which would supposedly allow for some common sense to be part of the rulings. In this episode, we will look at the 50 years after Solon's departure, and how the political system was faring, which wasn't very well. This will then bring us to a few more important figures in Athenian history and the path to democracy. We will begin with a man named Pisistratus, who would form Athens' first successful tyranny, then move on to his sons, Hippias and Hipparchus, who would continue the tyranny until things started to unravel. Then a man named Cleisthenes would come onto the scene and the reforms he would put in place would really start to make Athens look like a fully-fledged democracy. We have a lot to cover this episode, so let's get started, beginning with the events in Athens after Solon's departure. We are told in Aristotle's Athenian constitution that peace did not occur after Solon's departure, but lasted only four years before civil strife once again broke out. The competition for positions of archonship especially the eponymous archon, had become even more heated. Not only were the Eupatridae in competition with each other's family factions, but they now had a new class of people to compete with, since eligibility to serve now rested on one's wealth, not their birth. Seems this new form of competition may have united the Eupatridae towards a common enemy, as in the fifth year after Solon left, a period of anarchy set in Athens. The word anarchy comes from the Greek anarchia, meaning without ruler or authority. Basically, no archons were elected for that year, as it appears that someone from wealth, but a non-noble, was either selected as archon or up for election. The Areopagus, who was still made up of the Eupatridae, then seemed to prevent the new political process from taking place, as they were still trying to protect their positions in society. Five years later, the same thing would happen again, and Athens would find itself with no leadership seemingly due to the resentment the Eupatridae had towards the new system of political class. Times were changing, but they were resisting as much as possible. We then hear of a man named Damasius, who in 582 stayed in office as Archon for just over two years before being forcibly removed, remembering that a person could only serve as Archon for one year. This could have been an attempt to prevent the new political class from taking office the year after him, or more likely that he was attempting to form a tyranny. In response to this crisis, we hear of ten Archons being elected the next year, which seems to be more along the lines of ten men making the shortlist. Five which came from the nobility, and five that did not. This stopgap measure doesn't seem to have changed anything, and the strife continued. The real problems were not being addressed. Many had become poor overnight due to Solon's cancelling at debts, and the old class structures had been threatened. Many from all the classes were left unsatisfied, as in their eyes the constitution did not go far enough in pursuing their ideals. Rivalries continued between factions, polarising them to a greater extent than before, which resulted in three main factions emerging from these 50 years of political instability. The three main factions that had developed were the men of the plains, the men of the coast, and the men beyond the hills. 
These factions were led by men of the Eupatridae and extended their influence into the different territories in Attica. Although the nobility were running the factions, each three had different political goals in mind, with the goals influenced by the demographics of the territories these factions were present in. The men of the plains had most of their influence in and around the territories closest to Athens. Their main political goal was to return to the times before Solon's reforms, and have the Eupatridae back in control of everything. From their aims we can see that this faction most certainly had the greatest proportion of noble families driving this faction's agenda. The second faction was known as the Men of the Coast, and from their name you can probably guess their influence was strongest in the coastal territories of Attica. This group was looking for a more moderate political system, somewhere between an oligarchy and democracy. Although members of the Eupatridae led their faction, their political aspirations would have been driven by the people in these territories, who made it possible for the faction to exist. A great proportion of people in the coastal regions would have been engaged in commerce and trade, with a great deal probably slotting into the hoplite class. The last faction exerted its influence in the poorest regions of Attica, where most of the farmers and labourers called home. A large group of people who suffered from the cancelling of debts also seems to have aligned themselves to this group. The faction was known as the Men of the Hills or Beyond the Hills, and they were led by a member of the Eupatridae named Pisistratus. And from their membership, we can see that they were in favour of equal rights for all citizens, no matter their class. Pisistratus arranged and put himself at the head of the Hills faction in response to the growing influence of the other two factions. It appears that the Plains and Coast factions were more worried with each other, and little attention was paid to Pisistratus and his faction, to begin with at least. He would be the first man to install what would be called a successful tyranny in Athens that would last for 40 years. First, though, he had to take control of the government and convince Athens that they needed him, and even this wouldn't guarantee success. Initially, he would blindside both the other factions through the use of a ruse to gain power of the political system. Pisistratus rose into Athens on a cart pulled by his mules, though before entering Athens, he had inflicted wounds upon himself and his mules. As he travelled through the city, he told everyone he saw that he was attacked by his opponents from the other factions, but had managed to escape with his life. He was then able to fool the Athenians into providing him with a bodyguard to ensure his future protection from his enemies. With this bodyguard, which were named the clubmen as they were armed with clubs, he was able to capture the Acropolis and stall himself as tyrant. We are told that he kept the elected men in their governing positions and left its laws in place. He then set about beautifying the city and pleasing the Athenians and governed with the citizens in mind. Though before he could consolidate himself in his new position, the leaders of the other two factions put their differences aside and combined to take on a common enemy. By doing this, they were able to forcibly remove Pisistratus from power. Not long after his removal from power, the Plains and Coast factions reverted back to their old rivalries. Though it seems that the Coast faction was not faring so well, and its leader, Megacles, was having trouble with internal faction rivalries. Seeing that Pisistratus had been popular with the people, he now sought to form an alliance with him. Megacles offered the terms of the alliance, which included installing Pisistratus back in power. To cement the deal and the bond between the two, Megacles did what just about every noble leader has done throughout history. He offered his daughter's hand in marriage to Pisistratus. To convince the people of Athens to accept his return to power, they invoked the divine, in which we find Herodotus calling the silliest trick in history has to record. In this account of events, Megacles started a rumour that the goddess Athena was going to reinstate Pisistratus as ruler. 
they had found a very tall, attractive woman who lived in a village east of Athens. They dressed her up in armour to resemble Athena, then had her stand in a chariot with Pisistratus, then set off towards Athens. Ahead of the chariot, messengers had been sent to spread the word that Athena was returning Pisistratus back to Athens, and that everyone should come out and support his return, as he was being honoured by such a goddess. As the pair drove through Athens, they were viewed by those who had come out. Word then spread of the spectacle, and somehow the people were convinced that Athena herself had in fact rode with Pisistratus. Again, he had pulled off another ruse, this time with the help of Megacles, and he was placed back in power over Athens. But his time in power, once again, was only short-lived. Pisistratus managed to insult Megacles by refusing to have children with his new wife, Megacles' daughter. Megacles was part of the Alcmionidide family, who was supposedly cursed, so Pisistratus did not want to bring any of his offspring into the world under this curse, since it was supposedly extended to anyone connected to the family. Anyway, this was enough to greatly offend Megacles, and he sought to mend his relationship with his political rivals. Pisistratus, seeing that he'd been left out in the wind politically, decided it was best to leave Athens while he could, so he went into exile to the north. So now Pisistratus had failed twice to consolidate his position, and even though his life was in danger if he remained in Athens, he didn't let this stop his ambition and power from exile. This time around the states were raised, and no simple ruse was to be employed this time. A show of force would be needed. Pisistratus would be in exile for over ten years. He spent this time enriching himself, and with his wealth he was able to hire mercenaries from all over Greece. Eventually he and his mercenaries made their way to Eritrea, in the region of Euboea the long stretch of land east of Attica. Here, using the region as a springboard, Pisistratus prepared the launching of his third attempt on tyranny over Athens. He and his force first set foot on Attic soil at the Bay of Marathon, where they set up camp. We will be revisiting this site again in a future episode when we look at the famous battle that would take place there. Supporters of Pisistratus, once hearing of his return to Attica, made their way to Marathon to join the mercenary army. Once he had enough supporters assembled, he then marched on Athens. The Athenian force opposed to Pisistratus arranged an army to intercept his advance, and a battle was fought, where it appears that the Athenian force was taken by surprise and fled back in disorder to Athens. Pisistratus entered the city, but the danger wasn't over yet. There were still forces hostile to him, they just weren't arranged into an organised army to oppose him after their rout from battle, but they still had their arms. Pisistratus, being who he was, arranged another ruse to deal with this lingering threat during an armed parade he had arranged. During the parade, he tried to address the people, but the people became frustrated at the fact that they could not hear him. So he arranged for everyone to go up to the Acropolis so he could address them properly. Now, to enter through the gate onto the Acropolis, a person cannot be armed. So this is where Pisistratus's ruse came in. He had men loyal to him posted at the gates, that collected all the weapons and then locked them away. Once this had been done and Pisistratus had finished with his address, he informed them all of what had taken place, that they should not be alarmed but return home and see to their own lives, while he would take care of public affairs, which they supposedly did. It's hard to imagine people just shrugging their shoulders and returning home going, oh well. But we don't have anything else written that shows any more opposition to Pisistratus taking the city by force. At the end of the day, his enemies were completely disarmed, while his forces controlled the city. Also, his future actions as tyrant may well have laid to rest the fears of many, and may well have prevented any sort of subversive opposition from taking place. 
He was able to build good relationships with the people and the Eupatridae by taking an interest in and helping with the people's private concerns, while also engaging in friendly and advantageous dealings with the nobles. Doing this was essential for him to stay in power. He needed to have a good relationship with the nobles, as we have seen they were instrumental in removing him from power on two occasions already. Also, by appealing to the people and looking after their concerns, he prevented any large-scale revolt taking place against his rule. In essence, to become a successful tyrant, you need the popular support or the majority of the population on side. Pisistratus, over his rule, remained popular with the Athenians. He had brought peace to Athens, subduing tensions that had existed with Megara ever since the war between the two in the 630s BC, after the Chylon affair. He had stimulated the economy by now forcing the farmers to switch to olive cultivation that Solon had attempted to instigate, but had not caught on. Being ruler in his own right, he had more power to do this, though this seems like it might have made him unpopular with the farmers. Pisistratus offset their concerns by offering very cheap loans while they switched crops and waited for the olive trees to mature. Once most farms had mature crops, other parts of the economy also prospered, such as the pottery market. The abundance of olive oil for export and domestic use needed jars to be stored in and transported. The growth of these two parts of the Athenian economy also saw a demand for more workers in these fields, which would also increase the Athenian population. There would also be a flow-on effect now that more people were better off wealth-wise than before. This would see a demand for luxury goods increase, with more wealth spreading over the population. The growth of the pottery market due to the demand of storage containers also saw an increase in artistic wares, and soon Athens would become the leader in artistic pottery. Pisistratus also saw a stimulating literature and the arts in Athens, with the first official written accounts of the Homeric poems of the Iliad and Odyssey. In the most important Athenian religious festival, the Panathenia, he created a Homeric competition which saw the best reciters of poetry travel from all parts of Greece to attend Athens to take part. And for good measure, free food and wine was on offer for all. He also created a new festival in honour of the god Dionysus, where again food and wine were on offer, but this time it revolved around drama being presented to the people. This is where the genre of tragedy would be developed and popularised for the public. This was just a snapshot of what Pisistratus achieved for Athens during his rule, and in it we can see the beginnings of where Athens would develop its reputation of being the cultural centre of the Greek world. His rule as tyrant has come down to us in a positive light, providing stability and peace to a city that had been struggling with class division and eternal strife throughout most of the archaic period. In 528 BC, at around the age of 80, Pisistratus died of an illness. He had first come to power in 561, but ruled as tyrant continuously from 545 until his death. With his passing, his eldest son Hippias succeeded him as tyrant and would continue, with help from his brother Hipparchus, the legacy of his father's work, or for a time at least. Hippias and Hipparchus were the sons of Pisistratus from his first marriage, and were another reason Pisistratus didn't want to have children with Megacles' daughter. He didn't want to further muddy the waters for his sons when it came to succession or inheritance in regards to half-siblings. Hippias has come down to us as rational and level-headed, while his younger brother Hipparchus is presented as a bit more carefree and a socialite. The transition of the tyranny to Hippias got off to a smooth start, and the status quo from his father's rule was maintained. Though things changed with an episode of jealousy which would result in murder at the Panathenic Festival in 514. 
Hipparchus had made romantic advances towards a man named Harmodius, who was already lovers with a man named Aristogiton. I just want to pull up here for a minute to explain these relationships between men in ancient Greece that were quite common. It was normal for a man with a wife to also have a male lover, though our understanding of the word lover doesn't really put across what this relationship meant back in ancient times. It was seen as normal for a younger man to have an older male lover, who would form a lifelong bond with where the knowledge and wisdom of the older man would be passed on to the younger man. In return, the younger man provided companionship and a type of legacy the older man could pass on. It is also assumed that a physical aspect was part of the relationship, though in most accounts that talk about these relationships, it is normally inferred but not specifically stated. It was still socially unacceptable and frowned upon for two men to engage in a relationship for purely lustful reasons. The ancient sources emphasised the sharing of knowledge and the bond that was developed as being most important aspects. Also, in these times, to engage in a purely homosexual relationship and not have a wife, a man would be seen as a social outcast. I just want to give a little explanation to what these relationships meant back in ancient times, as our modern concept of male lovers tends to give the impression of a modern-day homosexual relationship. Anyway, so back to where we were. So Harmodius had ignored and made fun of Hipparchus' advances to Aristogiton, which in turn made Hipparchus extremely mad. Harmodius' sister was invited to be a basket bearer during the Panathenic festival, but before the festival she was publicly refused the honour on account of being accused that she wasn't a virgin, which was one of the requirements. This brought extreme shame and embarrassment to the family, and where we are told, formed the impetus of the plan to overthrow the tyranny, though one can't help think that other factional and political factors were at play as well. A plan was devised by Harmodius and Ristogiton, with their co-conspirators, to assassinate the brother tyrants at the festival. Though the plan unravelled when Harmodius and Aristogiton saw one of their co-conspirators friendly greeting Hippias. Assuming that they had been betrayed, they leapt into action. Acting with haste, their original plan went by the wayside. They were able to get to Hipparchus, where they killed him, and according to the account by Herodotus, fulfilled a dream he had the night before, where he received a cryptic message warning him of his fate. Hipparchus's guards were nearby when he was cut down. They killed Harmodius on the spot and were able to arrest Aristogiton not long after. He was held and tortured in the hopes that he would reveal the names of the other co-conspirators. The interrogation of Aristogiton revealed the names of noble men who were close to Hippias as being part of the conspiracy, which would lead to a change in how Hippias would rule over Athens. Hippias was present at the interrogation and was tricked into shaking hands with Aristogiton who then mocked him for shaking hands with his brother's assassin, which saw Hippias fly into a rage and killed him on the spot. Later on, when Athens had become more democratic, a statue of Harmodius and Aristogiton was erected in 409 BC to celebrate their part in freeing Athens from tyranny, to which they would be known as the Liberators and the Tyrannicides. Hippias now found it hard to trust anyone, as even those in his closest circles had been shown to be hostile towards him. His suspicion led to him becoming extremely cruel in his rule, and a great many executions were ordered to be carried out in revenge of his brother's murder. Anyone who was seen to have said something negative towards Hippias would be a target of his vengeance. The tyranny started by his father was now unravelling. The popular support which Lysistratus saw integral to his success had now been lost. But how could they remove a tyranny which now had cemented itself over decades? The main driving forces that would lead to the ousting of Hippias from Tyre and of Athens were from forces outside of Athens. Hippias' regime had a tight hold on Athens, even if it was now held by force. If an external force could move against him, presenting a way to free Athens from his rule, 
there would no longer be any popular support for him, and therefore his legitimacy lost. The main instigators to challenge Hippias were the Alcmionids, who had been exiled from Athens after the Chylon episode over a hundred years earlier, but were then able to return during the time of Solon, when he pardoned all exiles. When Pisistratus came to power, the family was once again exiled from Athens, as they seemed to have posed the largest threat to his rule. They had attempted to return, and had failed, but now with an unpopular ruler holding power by force, it seemed the time was now right. The Acmeonids were an extremely wealthy and influential family, and remained this way while in exile. They had won a commission to rebuild the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, which had burnt down some time earlier. It was here that they used religion to influence politics, by their relationship, bribery, or a combination of both with the priests and priestess at the site. They focused their attention on another Greek city-state, that of Sparta, who had also come a long way politically and dominated their region. They would attempt to influence the Spartans to come to their aid. The Spartans were very pious, and the tyranny at Athens was also very friendly towards the Spartans' main competitor, on the Peloponnese, the city-state of Argos. The Acmeonids had arranged that whenever a Spartan delegation came to Delphi, as part of the oracle, they received the words to free the Athenians from their tyranny. Eventually, after many returning delegations with the same message, the Spartans were convinced that they had to act. The Spartans' initial attempt to liberate Athens was a seaborne attempt that landed in Attica, but then was defeated by Thessalian cavalry, an ally of the Athenians. The commander of the force was killed in action before the survivors returned home. The attempt seems to have been not much larger than a raiding party. Now, with the Spartans' reputation under threat, a more serious force was arranged, this time under the command of the Spartan king, Cleomenes. And this time, they would march by land through the Isthmus of Corinth into Attica. Once again, they met the Thessalian cavalry, but were able to defeat them this time with a larger, stronger and better-led army. With the way now cleared, the Spartans then marched onto Athens and laid siege to Hippias, with the citizens also joining in the siege. During the siege, Hippias attempted to get his sons out of the city to safety, but in the attempt, they were intercepted and captured. This was the point that saw the end of the tyranny in Athens. Hippias surrendered himself to secure the safety of his sons. He was given safe passage, leaving Athens to where he would eventually make his way across the Aegean to the Persian court, where he would try and reappear in Greek affairs in the future. With the tyranny removed, Athens went back to its old tricks. The faction fighting which dominated Athenian politics before Pisistratus took power once again set back in. This time we hear of two opposing figures emerge as leaders of their respective factions. Hysagoras is described as being a friend of the tyrants, and Cleisthenes was a member of the Alcmeonid family, who were instrumental in removing Hippias from power. Early on, Cleisthenes was getting the worst of the political fighting, and Hysagoras was elected archon in 508. Cleisthenes is then said to have made it known to the people that he would extend power to the masses. This in turn started to see Isagoras start to fall behind the eight ball, which led him to take measures to improve his position. He turned to Cleomenes, someone who appears to be an odd choice since Isagoras was a friend of the tyrants, and the tyranny which Cleomenes had helped overthrow supported Sparta's main rival on the Peloponnese. Anyway, we are told that they had a guest host friendship known as Xenia, which possibly extended back between their families. The basic concept of Xenia was the mutual respect between a host and his guest. The host was expected to provide the guest with food, drink, and a bath, and generally be hospitable. 
It was considered to be impolite to ask questions of the guests before the guests had been provided in this way. Upon the guest's departure, the host would also provide the guest with a gift. In return, the guest was expected to be courteous and not become a burden to the host during their stay, and would also usually provide a gift to the host. The guest-host relationship could run for generations between families, where the roles of guests and hosts could be reversed depending on who was visiting whose polis. Cleomenes and Asagoras arranged for a demand to arrive in Athens, which demanded the expulsion of Cleisthenes and a number of other Athenians allied to him on the grounds of them being accursed. This was in reference to the curse that had been placed on the Acmeonidod family back in Chilon's time. Cleisthenes withdrew from Athens and Cleomenes entered with a small force to help install Isagoras and his supporters in power. The Athenian people, seeing an all-too-familiar scenario play out and the memory of Hippias's tyrannical rule still fresh in their minds, they came out united and besieged Cleomenes and Isagoras on the Acropolis. On the third day of the siege, a truce was arranged to where it was arranged for safe passage of Cleomenes and his small force out of Athens. Unfortunately for the rest of the supporters of the coup, they were imprisoned before being executed shortly afterwards. With Isagoras out of the picture and the Spartans expelled, the Athenians now recalled Cleisthenes and the exiled families back to Athens. The intervention by Sparta and their subsequent defeat at the hands of the so-called Athenian rabble, from their point of view, sowed the seeds of mutual distrust for much of their future interactions with each other. Immediately afterwards, we are told that a state of war existed between the two city-states, and both prepared for conflict. The Spartans had arranged for a force to march from the Peloponnese, while also coordinating with allies north of Attica. But before they fell on Athens, political differences broke out between the two Spartan kings, Cleomenes and Demaratus, who had marched with the army. To add to the Spartans' troubles, the Corinthians, one of their biggest allies, also decided to not continue with the campaign. The rest of the forces, seeing this breakdown, lost confidence and the invasion petered out before falling on Athens. Part of the Athenians' preparation of this invasion involves a story by Herodotus that will hold some relevance in a few episodes' time when we get to the Persian Wars. He says that an Athenian delegation was sent to Sardis over in Asia Minor, at this stage part of the Persian Empire. They met with the Persian governor of the region, Artaphernes, to whom they sought an alliance to strengthen their position against Sparta. In our next episode, we'll be introducing ourselves to the Persians in a similar way we have done with both Athens and Sparta, since they will play a major role in the classical period of Greek history. The Persians are supposed to have asked who the Athenians were and where they lived in the world. The Persians then agreed to help the Athenians if they could supply earth and water, which were seen as tokens of submission to the Persian Empire. The tokens not having the same significance to the delegation were offered. Once it was realised what they had offered up, they would be reprimanded upon their return to Athens. The Athenian delegation had thought they had secured an ally, while the Persians thought they had secured a new possession for their empire. And as we will see in future episodes, this may have led to repercussions for the Athenians. With the breakdown of command and the alliances, the invasion was effectively called off. The Athenians then set about mopping up some of the allies of Sparta's that had moved into Attic territory from the north. With the immediate threats to Athens quelled, Cleisthenes was put in place to govern Athens. He had the unanimous support of the people, who he had promised a much greater say in politics. He now set out to fulfil his oath to the masses and began installing a much more democratic system than existed before. One of the first major changes that he conducted was the reorganisation of the voting population into a system of deems, thirds and tribes. 
This system would prevent the old factions forming and one geographical area becoming dominant over the others. This also allowed policies to be formed not on what was important to one region and the specific concerns that arose there, but would now encompass the concerns of all of Attica, since the tribes were represented across all the regions. The basic system went something like this. The region of Attica was divided up into three zones, the city, coastal and inland. The deems which there were 139 of were a sort of suburb in urban centres or subdivision in rural areas. These were then divided up into 30 groups, known as thirds. Ten of these groups would then be assigned to each of the three zones and then put into ten tribes. So a citizen would be registered to a deem he belonged to. That deem then would be assigned to one of the 30 groups called thirds. That group along with nine others would be assigned to one of the three zones depending on its location. Then the zone with its deem would be divided into ten tribes which were given the name of a mythological Athenian hero. All this can sound a little confusing, but I have provided a link on the episodes page on the website that shows what this looked like on a map. This reworking completely changed the political landscape, with the members of a tribe spread out all over Attica. This system also went a long way to diminishing the influence that the Eupatridae had held in their regions previously. With this restructuring of the voting population, Cleisthenes then set about reforming the Boule, which was that council of 400 that Solon had created. It was now increased to 500 with 50 citizens selected by lot from each tribe to serve on it for one year. Any citizen registered at the deem was liable to be chosen during the lottery. It was no longer reserved for the top tiers of society. This also allowed more of the concerns of citizens from all over Attica to be raised within Athens when the council met. The deems would act as centres of local government where the regional issues could be raised and sent with their representatives when the council would meet. The Boule would, under these changes, also grow in importance over the other organs, to where it would be responsible for most of the day-to-day administration of the Athenians. The basic leadership and military structures were now also built on this system of tribes. Every year, ten men were selected to serve as generals, one man from each tribe. These generals were known as strategoi, and were the highest authority on civil and military matters. The title strategoi is where we get our English word strategy which to us involves the planning and setting of long-term goals, and how the available resources will achieve these goals. The ancient Athenian strategoi can be seen as the starting point of where this planning can take place, since he had control over the military and civilian elements of society. The basic Athenian military system was also built out of tribes, with all citizens to take up arms in the event of war. They were very different than that of the Spartans, as they were not professional soldiers but farmers, potters, blacksmiths and so on and would form a militia when required. When at war, each tribe would make up a phalanx, which was a tightly packed formation the hoplites fought in, and the standard Greek fighting formation throughout the classical period. In a further attempt to create equality among citizens, a change was made to how people were referred to. Its goal was to reduce the importance of the family that one came from in regards to one's status. Previously, for example, someone would be known as John, son of James, and if James was well-born, This allowed John to point to his family and also his status as well-born. Now though, John would be referred to as John of Marathon, providing he was from that deem. This would install a sense of equality amongst the citizens, as they could no longer rely on their family name, but were theoretically judged on their own merits. This would also theoretically blend the newly created citizens under Solon's reforms, in with the already established families, as one's ancestral lineage was not the focus of their identity. 
Though this was the official line, we still find in written sources later, people being referred to by their family line. It appears socially these distinctions were still made, but the aim was to treat all citizens the same under the constitution. Another system Cleisthenes brought in was one that almost certainly was a response to the tyrannies and attempted ones that had now started to become commonplace. This system was known as ostracism, but wouldn't be used for the first time for at least another 10 years. It was designed to expel a citizen from Athens for 10 years, which after they could return. It was designed so that a preemptive measure could be taken against a would-be threat to the city-state or a potential tyrant. The term gets its name from the word ostraca, which was a broken pottery shard. Once a year in the assembly, the Athenians were asked if they wished to hold a vote for ostracism. It wasn't mandatory for the vote to take place, but gave the option for when a person or people were seen to be possible threats to the Athenian constitution. If the assembly wished to go ahead, the vote would then take place a couple of months after, and everyone would be given an ostraca on which they would scratch the name of the person they wished to be ostracised. Once all of these shards were counted, the citizen with the most votes against them would be banished. As we move on through the episodes, we will be seeing some examples of ostracism being used. We can see the recall of Cleisthenes back to Athens and in a position to reform the constitution for the similar scenario to when Solon was put in power, though a huge difference separated the two. Solon had been given this mandate by the Eupatridae, and Cleisthenes was acting on behalf of the people, which saw the reforms move in a much more democratic direction. Cleisthenes has been hailed as the father of democracy, but so is Solon. It seems very unlikely that either of them set out to create a democratic system for the sake of everyone having equal say in political affairs. The reforms they both put in place were in response to the degenerating political landscape. Solon put in place some changes that would eventually evolve into more democratic processes. The changes were in response to the widening gap between the classes and the tension developing. The initial changes failed in quelling tensions partly due to the eupatridized prejudice against the newly franchised parts of society who Solon had helped give a voice to after his reforms. This then saw continued fighting between the classes and saw the rise of a new political leader, the tyrant. As we saw, the situation in Athens was stabilised for a period with Pisistratus as tyrant, but then with all the power resting with one man, this type of rule could be very unpredictable and dependent on the type of person in power. When the power of the tyranny transferred to Hippias, events took place that saw the tyranny take a darker side. With the removal of the tyrants, thanks to some outside help from another city-state, Sparta, more trouble developed. Faction fighting began again, and this time Sparta was now helping to install another tyranny or oligarchic system. This time the resistance from the people was united, and the would-be tyrants and their muscle were denied power. The people had found a champion in Cleisthenes, who had sought support from the people in becoming Archon. He reformed the earlier systems to provide all citizens political power, while also finding ways to diminish the influence the Eupatridae could wield. This now left Athens with a basic democratic system that would come to define the polis. It would receive further refinements over time, but we can now start to think of Athens as a democratic power. So as we have seen, over the last two episodes, Athens has come a long way from the small settlement upon the rocky outcrop in the Bronze Age. It now included an entire region where the inhabitants of the village surrounding the Acropolis were also considered Athenian. How the people were led also came to reflect something that was completely different to the kings of the Bronze Age. The system of democracy was innovative and a very new concept, though it had come about and evolved through the reaction to political troubles between the classes. 
The system wasn't perfect, and we will see as we continued how political figures would try and use the system to their advantage. Hopefully the last four episodes have given a good understanding of how both Sparta and Athens had developed politically up to the Classical Age. As our story continues, we will be looking back into these periods just covered with Sparta and Athens, to fill in some small gaps in regards to events as they become relevant. But for the next two episodes, we'll be crossing the Aegean and looking at developments in the Near East. Most of the focus will be on Anatolia and where modern Iran is today. Here we will look at the creation and rise of the Persian Empire, whose existence and interactions would have a great impact on the Greek world. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. You can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 12, Persia, Rise of an Empire.